And if you could open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, 1 through 9 is our passage this morning. Let's read God's Word together. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to Him a child, He put Him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, you call us to tremble at your word. And I pray that we would tremble before your holy word this morning. Lord, we are reminded by this passage of scripture of just the gravity of those who receive you, Jesus. Those who believe in you. Those who repent of their sins. Oh Lord, we as Christians in this room, we celebrate the great joy that salvation from sin brings. Lord, we also simultaneously get a glimpse in this section of Scripture of how grave the consequences of sin are. To the unrepentant, to the unbelieving, Lord, the consequences of sin are absolutely staggering. And Lord, we pray that you would cause all of us in this room to focus our eyes on Jesus Christ this morning, your son, and that we would be transformed through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you to do this in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. We've been in the midst of this series entitled Follow Me, looking through the Gospel of Matthew and here we see a section entitled, entitled, Who is the Greatest? Who is the Greatest? And when I thought of, uh, just as I was meditating on this section of Scripture, I was uh, really affected by the fact that nobody ever dreams of humbling themselves. You don't tend to have daydreams about humbling yourself. I remember when I was uh, growing up, I had a basketball hoop out in front of my house, and 
there were many times when I would go out and I would shoot baskets and sometimes I would just be all by myself out there shooting baskets for hours and uh, inevitably when I was doing that I would imagine that I was in this critical game that I was in and that really the game all came down to whether or not I was going to make the last shot and and I remember uh, there were many times in private where I had a commentary running in my head at the same time that I was dribbling and cutting back and looking to make some shot, and I'd be saying things like, Edder brings the ball up the court, and it's all on his shoulders now. Five, four, three, two, one. He wins! He wins! He wins! And imagining people uh, jumping on top of me and celebrating as I hit the game-winning shot yet again. And of course, in that scenario... If I absolutely missed the shot or even fired off an air ball, I would have an opportunity to rewind and do it again <laughs> in order to make myself out to be the hero that I always imagined myself to be in scenarios like that. Nobody tends to dream of humbling themselves. Nobody tends to have daydreams where they lose rather than win, or they go lower rather than going higher. No, our our very bent as human beings is to, to dream upward, to dream of winning, to dream of going higher. And that's the context of the passage we find ourselves in here in Matthew chapter 18. It seems that the disciples here came to Jesus and asked him a question. The context here, we know this from the other gospel accounts of this section is, is that they were in a home, most likely they might have even been in Peter's actual actual household. And when they came and asked him this question, it really revealed their hearts. They come and they ask Jesus a question saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This question here was one that revealed sort of a spirit of competition amongst the disciples as they would have conversations from time to time. And this wasn't uh, the first, I'm sure it wasn't the last where the disciples were sizing up one another and thinking about who's the greatest, who's going to be first, who's the best. And they were doing that at this time. It, it's, it's very telling because Jesus is on his way now heading toward the cross where he's going to suffer and die for their sins, and yet they're thinking about greatness rather than thinking about Christ. That's the context that we find ourselves in here. Jesus actually, in Matthew chapter 17, in the section we looked at last week in verses 22 and 23, for the second time, he prophesied that this was going to be his pathway. As they were gathered in Galilee, Jesus said to them, Matthew 17, 22, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The disciples were greatly distressed. And their distress over the pathway of Jesus going to the cross didn't last super long, because here in the transition, we see that they're now asking Him, who's the greatest? It seems that what was happening here was that there was some rivalry. There was selfish ambition amongst the disciples, 
Perhaps some of it might have been stirred up over the last latest season where Jesus brought the three up onto the mountain and transfigured himself before Peter, James, and John while others were down in the valley seeking to heal a boy with a demon. And that we looked at in that section last week. So perhaps some of the disciples were wondering why the other three went up to the mountain and they didn't get asked or whatever, but there was definitely rivalry and there was competition. There was selfish ambition at work here in Matthew chapter 18. And this question wasn't innocently asked because the answer to the question that was asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're looking at him. The one they're asking the question to remember the one that was transfigured on the mountain. Remember the one who showed himself to you in heavenly glory. Remember the one who just drove out the demon that you couldn't drive out. I mean, you're talking about greatness amongst yourself. You could not drive out this one demon. And Jesus drove out the demon very quickly. And so the context is one of their weakness and Christ's strength. Their sin and unbelief and doubt and Christ's heavenly glory. And yet, still in the midst of that context, the disciples are saying, hey, who's the greatest here? And even asking Jesus that question. Jesus looks at this as an opportunity, really, to come and to teach them a lesson about the kingdom of God. And what we're going to look at here today, brothers and sisters, in relation to one simple point is that greatness is about going lower not higher. Greatness is about going lower, not higher. Verse 2, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a staggering statement to the disciples. They're asking a question, hey, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it me? And Jesus is saying, listen, the very question you're asking, unless you turn away from that very mentality, unless you turn away from that very attitude, you're not even going to enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be great in it. They're talking about greatness. He's talking about entering. And I find that so, so powerful and so moving. Brothers and sisters, true greatness is about going lower, not going higher. This passage here, he's talking about unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says here, humbling yourself. This word for humbling yourself actually means to go lower. To go low. Unless you go low here. He's teaching them, unless you turn. This word for turn can actually be translated accurately. Unless you are converted unless you convert and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, whoever goes lower like this child. Now, what is the significance here of a child? Why is that so significant? We need to really understand, is there some type of uh, dynamic here that maybe we don't understand? I think what Jesus is getting at here in relation to bringing a child before them and we, we learn from the other gospel accounts, he brings the child and, and actually sits the child with him. Jesus loves little children. This word for child is actually talking about a very little child, maybe even an infant. And it seems like maybe perhaps it could have even been one of Peter's children that Jesus was familiar with. And he brought him before him and pointed this child out as an example to the disciples of what they needed to become like and what they needed to convert into in order for them even to enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be great in it. This description of a child, brothers and sisters, is very much about a humility of mind that a child has. There is a spirit of dependence upon parents that a little child has they are unconcerned children or small children they are unconcerned about social status and climbing a ladder to achieve some type of status before men or prestige or social standing they little children are not striving to be great to impress everybody around them or to rise above their peers. They are dependent. They are not striving. They are not cunning. They are not selfishly ambitious social climbers. Jesus is saying, you need to become like this child. Dependent. Humble, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who recognize they are in need of God's help. Those who humbly come before the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I am spiritually bankrupt without you. I've got no hope of salvation without you. And we lift our hands up. I remember my daughter Ashlyn when she was very, very little she just made this cute little expression where she would look up at us just barely when she was able to walk and she would just go like this and just hold her hands like this. Hey, Daddy, pick me up. Pick me up. Pick me up. That was so adorable. So cute. Now she's sitting here as a 15-year-old and oh, I want to go and hug her. Hug you too, Verity. These kids are getting so big so fast, aren't they? Oh. But that dependent spirit of just resting and, and trusting in a parent's love and dependent upon parents for everything. And also not just the dependence, but also the freedom from asking even a question like, who is the greatest? A little child is not asking a question like that. Jesus is saying, you need to actually 
That's the way of the world to ask such questions. You need to actually turn away from the whole mentality of striving and selfish ambition and vain conceit. And we learn later in Philippians 2, 4, where the scriptures say, do nothing out of rivalry or vain conceit or seeking to advance yourself over and above your peers to be on top, dog eat dog, that type of mentality. That's the world, Jesus says. That's not to be the way it is amongst God's little ones. You must convert disciples. You must turn from that very mentality and repent of it because true greatness is about going lower, not going higher. And if you even want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like this little child and humble yourself and go lower and not higher. Oh, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven cannot be entered unless there is a turning from the pursuit of wanting to be on top. Wanting to be the best, wanting to be the king of the hill, wanting to be the one who was recognized. There's actually a man in the Bible named Diotrephes who the only, the only description of him in the Bible is, is that he just wants to be first. He wants to be top dog. That's about Diotrephes. It's like one description of this man's character and it says he just wants to be on top. That's what the disciples are talking about here. They, they want to be on top and they, they are recognizing this. You see this throughout. It's amazing. You see it here in Matthew 18. You see it later on in Matthew chapter 20. The, the mother of the sons of Zebedee come and, and most likely at, they nudge their mom along to ask this question, but she asks, Hey Jesus, Hey, listen, can one of my sons sit at your right hand and the other on the left? And, and, and the other disciples watched the, the brothers strivingly do this thing. And, and the other disciples become jealous and envious. It actually tempts, it stumbles the other disciples because these other disciples are grasping and actually using their mom to help elevate their status in Jesus' eyes. They're thinking that the kingdom of God and the pathway of Jesus is all about them sitting on thrones, being on top, and and that that is the way of the world. And Jesus recognizes what they're doing, and he's telling them, you need to convert, you need to change, you need to abandon this mentality. This is the very reason I need to come and die on the cross, is because you're even asking a question like this, because true greatness is about going lower, not higher. It's about humbling yourself like this little child in desperate dependence upon me and me alone. We learn elsewhere that Jesus says that the greatest amongst you is the one who serves. The greatest is the least. The least of all. He turns the world mentality on its head. And Christ Community Church, I just simply want to ask us this question. Have we converted? What is our attitude when it comes to things like this? Are we driven by a spirit of rivalry, of competition, of wanting to be on top? of wanting title, position, prestige, status, greatness? 
Because brothers and sisters, Jesus gives a very stern word here. Unless you turn, unless you convert and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We can see this mentality often, even amongst professing believers, when you have a mentality when it comes to serving, rather than serving where I'm most needed, the whole paradigm of my mentality and my grid as a servant of God is, oh, I'll serve, but I'll serve where I feel the most fulfilled serving. I'll serve, but I'll serve where I feel the most honor will come my way. Jesus is saying, if you want to look at the pathway I'm calling you to, it's about humbling yourself. It's about walking into a room the night before I'm going to die for you and to symbolize the fact that I'm going to serve you by laying down my life and dying for you tomorrow, what I'm going to do tonight before I serve the Lord's Supper to you that points to my broken body and shed blood on the cross for you is I'm going to wash your feet. I'm going to show you what true greatness is. I'm going to wash the dirt off of your feet as the King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm going to go lower. I'm going to show to you the type of greatness that you need to aspire to, to humble yourself and become like a little child, to be so dependent, so meek, that you are not a striver, you are not someone who's a ladder climber, a social standing climber. You are like a child innocent in relation to selfish ambition and vain conceit. As Philippians 2 talks about. There's a description that I heard one of my friends describe one of my other friends like. And and I was so moved by it. He said, this man is a man without guile. A man without guile. And I was so affected by that description. And a man without guile is a man... Or a woman without guile is a woman who's about others, not about themselves. They're about God. They're not about themselves. They're they're not out for themselves. They're out for the good of others. That's their living. That's their mentality. That's their attitude. That's their M.O. A man without guile or a woman without guile is a servant. That's their mentality. A man or a woman not concerned about title not concerned about affirmation or recognition in the eyes of men, but concerned for God and concerned for His glory. Oh, they fight passionately, but they fight passionately for God's causes, not their own. They don't care if they are trampled down into the dust, but zeal for the house of the Lord will consume them. May we, Christ Community Church, be men and women without guile. May we have a heart of seeking to serve the Lord and never be noticed, to to do all that we do before the audience of one, to seek to please Christ, and to not seek to serve as a means to the end of me becoming higher up than others. This mentality is so prevalent today. It's so common, isn't it, brothers and sisters? 
to seek to lift ourselves higher than other people, to, to boast in our gifts, our talents, our abilities, to look down upon other people who we think we're higher than, or to envy and be jealous of and to eye those who we deem higher than us and seek to bring those people down through negative speech and negative cunning action. And for those who are below us, we just kind of take a mentality of they exist to serve me, not I exist to serve them. Oh, brothers and sisters, we must turn, all of us, we must convert away from that. That's the way of the world. That's not to be the way it is in God's church, in God's household, with God's children. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. True greatness is about going lower, not going higher. And may God give us grace, Christ community, to excel in this for His glory. May we convert. If you like me, and I was so convicted as I was working through this passage, like just Holy Spirit, where, where in my life right now do I need to convert in relation to this? Where does the mentality of wanting to be on top need to die in my life? Where specifically are you putting your finger, Holy Spirit, for me to repent and turn away from this, even as you were saying to the disciples, unless you convert CB, unless you turn CB and become like this little child in relation to this area in your life, CB. That's the way we need to apply God's word. We need to get specific into where is God seeking to me, seeking to ask me to turn in relation to my attitude toward my spouse, to turn in relation to my attitude toward my parents, to turn in relation to my attitude toward my friends or my brothers and sisters in Christ and not have a mentality of I'm better than them. I'm greater. Jesus is saying, oh no, unless you turn, turn from that mentality, turn away from that, my son, turn away from that, my daughter. Because those who do not turn away from it can't even enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be great in it. And if you want to be great in it, then become like this little child, dependent, not striving, not climbing, but embracing the hard attitude as Ben preached a couple weeks ago of take up your cross and follow me. Oh, brothers and sisters, right after he's telling them take up the cross and die, they're talking about greatness. That's such a description of our hearts, isn't it? Aren't you so thankful that even in the midst of all of their selfish ambition, and their vain conceit, and their rivalry, and their climbing, and their I'm better than you mentality, that it didn't stop Jesus from going to the cross and dying for them anyway, and dying for you and me anyway. I am so grateful for the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf, aren't you? Isn't it such good news to our weary souls? Isn't it such... Good news of great joy unto all us people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. A Savior from all this. The rat race. A Savior from this. 
to redeem us out from this and to, to take us on a different direction, a different path, so that the world will look in and say, look at how they love one another, not look at how they climb, look at how they, they go for themselves, look at how they're no different from the world. No, they should see something different. They should see that we're Christians. They should tell that we've been converted, that we've turned, and we've become like little children. We are meek and not climbers, strivers, for our own dreams. And brothers and sisters, start you start to see in yourself after a while of becoming a Christian, you start to dream new dreams. Dreams of serving. Dreams of laying down your life for the goodness of the gospel and for the glory of God. News and dreams of, oh Lord, how do you want me to sacrifice for your kingdom? How do you want me to go lower in order for your church to go higher? How do you want me to humble myself in order that the name of Christ might be exalted? You start to see yourself changing by the power of the Holy Spirit and you recognize that's not me by nature. Who I am by nature is the one who only dreams great dreams of himself, being high, being the winner, being on top. The prophet Jeremiah in the King James Version, actually it says, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us not seek great things for ourselves. Let us seek His face and seek Him. Let us take up the cross and follow Jesus, the one who was the example of what He's asking for here, becoming Himself like a little child and meekly and humbly carrying the cross beam on His back all the way to Calvary to lay down His life to die for sinners like us. Aren't you so thankful for our great Savior? George Smeaton wrote a book, The Apostles' Doctrine of the Atonement. And in that book, he said, how sad to have proud servants of a humble, dying Savior. How sad indeed to have proud servants of a humble, dying Savior. Brothers and sisters, we are called to follow in the footsteps of our Savior, Jesus Christ. True greatness is not measured in social status or standing or title or position or any such thing. True greatness is about Christ-likeness. It's about humbling ourselves like Jesus did. And I want to refer here to the passage of Scripture that maybe has even been running into some of your minds, even as I've been preaching this message so far in Philippians chapter 2. Do you remember the glorious passage where God's Word, talking about Jesus, and the call really for us to follow in His example of humility. It says in in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. The same mind here is what Jesus is advocating, the mindset of humility of a child 
that is dependent upon God that recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy or her spiritual bankruptcy without God, but completely depends upon Christ and doesn't have a mentality of striving, but serving. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here it is. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. You see the contrast between grasping and emptying. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Thank you, Jesus. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The way to exaltation is through humility. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and the one who exalts himself shall be humbled. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here Jesus is saying, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, and whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let us pursue, brothers and sisters, going lower. Let us pursue humbling ourselves. Let us turn away from the pathway of the world. And you know, sometimes we're going to look at those who operate according to the mentality of the world, and it's going to seem like they're winning. Sometimes you're going to look and you're going to see people who strive, and they're going to get what they strive after. But brothers and sisters, let us never be tempted to pursue a similar path. Let us remember that we must go about living our lives in the Spirit of Christ. We must give ourselves over to going lower and not higher because it pleases Christ. It might not seem like in the temporary that it always wins. After all, we live in the world that highlights and values things like the survival of the fittest, where the weak get swallowed up by the strong. But brothers and sisters, true strength, true greatness comes from showing Christ-likeness, godly character. I was reflecting on the qualifications for an elder in the church. Fourteen of the qualities are character-related. There's one related to gifting. It's all pointing to that God is very concerned about gifting. Yes, indeed, He's also very concerned about godly character and godly men and women. Christ-likeness is very important to Christ in the church. We must Humble ourselves and be like this child. That's how you pursue true greatness. By going lower, not by pursuing great things for yourself or for your own name to be great. Oh, I'm so affected and so moved by that. 
transitioning to verse 5 and going through verse 9. Let's read. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fashioned around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We see the description in the first section of how to enter the kingdom of heaven. And indeed, there's nothing more important for anyone in this room than that we enter the kingdom of heaven by humbling ourselves, by recognizing our desperate need for a savior, admitting that we are a sinner, confessing to the Lord that we are a sinner and turning and forsaking the old life that we once pursued, the old life of selfish ambition, vain conceit, rivalry, the old life of pursuing what the world pursues and saying no to the world. Give me Jesus, that turning away from that and and humbling ourselves and repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. That is how we enter the kingdom of heaven. And we see here in verse five, there's a description of those who believe that they are called children. You see this description throughout the Bible that we are called God's Children, even the oldest amongst us here in this room are children of God. That's how he views us. That's what we are. And we see here that he's not talking about just some special group of people here, a a child. He's whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. We see our, our union with Christ, that Christ so identifies himself with his body, with his children, that whoever receives receives warmly one such child or a messenger in Christ, receives Christ. But whoever causes one of these little ones, and here's the contrast, so we either receive Christ and receive His children, treat His children well, or whoever causes one of these little ones, and here we just see the description of who the little ones are, who believe in me, That's the synonymous expression of little ones. Those who believe in me, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are one of his little ones. Oh, that is a fatherly expression. It's a beautiful family expression. It's a tender expression of a father or a mother to their precious little child. Like, oh, you're one of my little ones. I love you. You're so sweet and so special and so dear to me. That's how God looks upon us, us as his church, as his children. He sees us not as his subjects, even though we are under his rule and his authority. We are his adopted children, his sons and his daughters, whom he loves and whom he cherishes and whom he has laid his life down for. And let us cherish the way God the Father looks down upon us that we would be called the children of God and marvel at the love that would adopt us and make us so. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. And this is how serious God's protection over his people 
and his, his, how jealously he guards over the security and safety of his beloved children. He guards it so passionately that he says, if there's anybody who causes one of my little ones to stumble or to sin, to, to literally to fall, that the word there for sin means to fall or to stumble. It doesn't mean to completely fall away, but there is a, de, a description here that there, there's an aspect here where there's all manner of sin involved with what he has in mind here by whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in him to sin. However we do it, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. You're better off dead than you are stumbling one of God's little ones. That's how serious sin and its consequences are against Christ and against His people. And our attitude towards how we receive God's little ones. Do we receive God's little ones warmly and with love and with affection? Do we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ with warmth and affection and love? Do we cherish our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we cherish the church? Do we do whatever we need to do to make things right and reconcile if we fall out with anybody in the church or have a struggle with anybody? Do we do whatever we can to to guard and protect their faith and do everything we can as the Apostle Paul says later on in the epistles, that I'll do nothing to cause my brother or sister to stumble. If there's anything that I would do to cause my brother or sister to stumble, I'll I'll reject that practice. I'll run away from it because I don't want to do anything to cause one of these little ones to stumble or be tempted. That's a zeal in proportion to Jesus' grave words here. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This mode of execution was a Roman practice that by the Jews was actually feared even more than crucifixion. To have a great stone thrown into the sea and you be chained to it and to be taken down into the depths was something of a horror to the Jewish mind. And those who heard this word, it woke them up to the reality of how evil sin is and how seriously Christ takes those who would cause one of His little ones, one of His children to sin. You don't want to do that. Brothers and sisters, here we see a general woe to the world in verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. I mean, you cannot go five minutes outside of this building or drive around or watch a football game today without advertisements that are enticements from the world saying, here's the life you want to live. Here's the dreams you want to pursue. The world is going after actively God's little ones to tempt them and entice them into sin. Here we see the context here where the disciples, they're arguing who's the greatest amongst each other. And brothers and sisters, we learn from Matthew chapter 20 that when they're arguing about it, that it actually causes some of the disciples to become indignant toward the others, envious. They were stumbled by those who were striving. 
There's definitely a reference and a connection here to how serious selfish ambition can be in the midst of the church. But certainly the application goes a lot broader. Any temptation to sin, any ways in which we are actively just not taking sin seriously and the way we sin against our spouse and just kind of take a lighthearted approach All of these kinds of things, stumbling a child. You see the reference later on in the scriptures to do not fathers exasperate your children or tempt them to sin. There's there's aspects there where we need to walk in the fear of the Lord's dads to make sure that we are representing Christ to our households, to our wives, to our children, to make sure we don't stumble one of God's Little ones, we want to make sure that we heed God's word. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why? Harshness can tempt her. Harshness can tempt her to sin. And when we act in that way, we can tempt them. And Jesus is saying we need to carry a fear of the Lord in relation to any temptation to the sin. Because woe to the world for temptations to sin. That word woe is a description of the judgment of God that's going to come upon the world for sin For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin. And here's where he turns his attention back. Not to the world, but he's teaching his disciples again. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. He's not advocating here for self-mutilation, brothers and sisters. You can... You could cut literally your hand off or your foot off and your heart wouldn't necessarily change. He's talking about do whatever it takes. Do whatever it takes to break free. Do whatever it takes to break free from the entanglements and the ensnaring effects of this world and sin. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We see the consequences of sin here played out by Jesus. We see how serious the consequences of sin are. They are eternal in nature lest we turn and repent and become like little children believing in Jesus Christ and turning away from the old life of the world to the new life of following Christ under His Lordship. Brothers and sisters, we would be thrown into the hell of fire if we did not repent. But thanks be to God, He has opened up our eyes to believe in Jesus for those of you who have and you have repented of sin. Thanks be to God, He has died on the cross for all of our sins, including all the ways in which we have failed in those lower verses. I couldn't help but read and be sobered in the fear of the Lord over how much my daily attitude and conduct about life matters to God. It's meant to cause all of us to look and take a deep soul searching into what we're living for, what we're about, what we're doing, how actively we are pursuing righteousness or how actively or passively we're going about life 
I think a lot of us, and I can be tempted to this sometimes, we just take this laissez-faire approach to, to our sin. We just sin and we don't care about it. We don't, we, we don't have a mentality of fearing the potential consequences of our sin and how we might stumble our brothers and sisters. And even if some of us were even to hear, you know, hey, you've stumbled your brother, you've stumbled your sister, the mentality would be like, I don't care. This passage is meant to cause all of us to care. To make all of us walk in the fear of the Lord. To fear not the one who can destroy our bodies. But rather fear the one who can destroy our body and our soul in hell. I want to speak just a moment about fear. Not all fear is bad. I heard R.C. Sproul say not too long ago that he doesn't want fear to be his highest motivation about following Christ and pursuing righteousness. But you know what? If I lived my entire life pursuing Christ and righteousness because I was so afraid of eternal damnation in hell, and on the final day of judgment I make it into heaven... Because I was so afraid of the eternal realities of hell and God's just punishment on the unrepentant that I strived and believed with all my heart in Jesus Christ. I laid hold of Him in repentance and faith truly because I looked at the reality of eternal hellfire and was so frightened of it that I ran and entered the kingdom of heaven. R.C. Sproul said something to the effect of, I'll take it. (laughs) Oh, brothers and sisters, amen to that. There's a mentality out there today that, that we should have no fear of God or no fear of the consequences of sin to, to even look at the reality of hell. We can start to feel like, okay, hit the stopwatch. How long are we going to talk about hell here? Because I I hope it's not very long. Brothers and sisters, hell's going to be very long. It's going to be very long. There's going to be no terminus, no end to the suffering of those in hell. It would behoove all of us to take a good, hard look at the reality of hell and the just punishment of God on the unrepentant, that they would be damned forever. That sin is so serious that it requires the just punishment of God and that sin is so wicked and so evil that in order for justice to be served, Hell needs to be eternal. That's how serious our rebellion against God and our sin is. Brothers and sisters, I want to frankly just confess to you, I'm afraid of hell. And I know that I'm a Christian. I know I'm born again. I'm resting in God's grace. And I also have a very real reality. I look at Jesus saying, To the disciples, when they're asking, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? And he's saying, hey, listen, unless you convert disciples, unless you turn disciples, CB, unless you turn from that mentality, that old life, unless you repent and become like one of these little children, unless you humble yourself, CB, and turn away, if you stumble or cause one of these little ones to sin, watch out, because it would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and for you to be drowned in the depths of the sea, you would be better off dead than in hell. Judas Iscariot, 
as it was prophesied about him, it would be better for him to have not been born than to be suffering what he is suffering right now. Brothers and sisters, not all fear is bad fear. There's a good, healthy fear of God that we need to have. And when we have that, it will cause our amazement that God would have sent his own son down to die on the cross and to bear the wrath that you and I deserve for all of eternity in hell and to put it on his son and punish his son instead. Your amazement at grace, your all and wonder at the cross is going to exponentially increase. You're going to be the most passionate Christian for Jesus in this church if you understand the reality of the just judgment of God in hell and how God has put that on Jesus instead of on you. And he has punished Jesus in your place instead of it being on you. Brothers and sisters, Oh, it's a good thing to take a hard, long look at the just judgment of God and remember that Christ has borne all of our sins on the cross. For one sinner causing a believer to sin, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around their neck. That's a horrible, horrible punishment. To consider. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. That's the second description. Better to cut your hand off or your foot off. I mean, really, that seriously? That serious? Is it really that bad? Is sin really that bad? Yes. Yes. And may all of us, Christ Community Church, take a very serious approach in our mindset, to the reality of remaining sin even in our own lives. We are forgiven of it. We are cleansed of it. It has been, the wrath against it has been satisfied, propitiated. And yet, brothers and sisters, we are called to walk out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are called to serve the Lord with fear and to rejoice with, with trembling. Psalm 2, may that attitude pervade And I believe when it does, rightly understood biblically, your joy in Christ will be exponentially greater, not less, because you have that fear. And that's what we're after. We want your joy to be to its full. And one of the ways the joy gets to the full is when you realize that though you deserve and I deserve to have a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the bottom of the sea, Christ had that done to him instead of you. Christ is the one who suffered hellish torments on the cross instead of you bearing it forever in hell. Oh, brothers and sisters, happily, oh, joyfully, we take note and we worship you, almighty God, for your broken body and your shed blood on the cross that has atoned for the wrath of God in my stead. Thank you so much, Jesus, for laying down your life Thank you for humbling yourself. You are indeed the highly exalted one, the name above every names. And we joyfully, Lord, we joyfully turn from that old life to follow you, to take up our cross, and to pursue the path of true greatness. 
the path of going lower and not higher. If I could have the worship band return, we're going to sing about Christ being highly exalted, the name above all names. And if we could just really remain quiet as the band returns. If there's anybody here who has never repented of their sins, never turned, never converted yet, to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross, it's such good news for you. No matter how much of a sinner you are feeling yourself to be as the Holy Spirit convicts you right now, you can turn to Christ and you will find eternal life in Him. You can turn to Christ in repentance and faith right now, friend. And you will be forgiven as we have been forgiven. For those of us in this room who have trusted in Jesus, may the reality that Christ has borne all of the wrath against your sins on the cross as your substitute, may it cause you to highly exalt Him. May it cause you and I right now, even as we close in singing, to say, your name is the name above all names, worthy to be praised. I gladly lay down my life. I gladly pursue the low path. I gladly, Lord, lay down the old way of the world to say yes, to be becoming like a little child, humbling myself and saying, I'll do anything for you, Jesus, to serve you. I'll serve you in secret. I'm not going to be about pursuing what this world pursues any longer. I'm going to break from that forever. I'm going to not strive to be on top any longer. I am going to go lower. I'm going to wash the feet of the saints, Jesus, the way you washed the feet of your disciples. I'm going to lay down my life and take up the cross and follow you, Jesus, and pursue the low road, which is the high road. Almighty God, I ask you to help us to do just this. We humble ourselves. We repent. We believe in you, Jesus. And we trust in your finished work on the cross and your finished work on the cross alone for all of our salvation. Thank you for looking out for our souls. Thank you for warning passages just like this that cause us to stop and to take notice and recalibrate our lives and say, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ and not the ways of this world. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. If any of you repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for the first time, please come forward and talk with John or I after the service. We would love to celebrate salvation. Let's worship. You are highly exalted, Jesus Christ. You are so worthy of our praise. Let's stand and praise him in closing. Oh, brothers and sisters, this, the theme this morning was joy in relation to Advent. And oh, what great cause of joy we have, dear brothers and sisters, to remember that our great Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, truly saved us from the wrath of God. And now we are His children. Let us give thanks to Almighty God with great joy because God has done such a wonderful and mighty thing for His precious children. He's laid down His life on the cross. 
He's been risen from the grave and he is now raised. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And we are awaiting his glorious return. All of that has been finished. It's been accomplished. And for those of us who have been saved by the grace of God, those of us who have repented and believed, we have been saved and saved to the uttermost. Let us give thanks to him through our applause. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Have a wonderful week, Christ community. Enjoy.